everybody. Welcome back to the The Imagination Podcast, a podcast about God, faith, and faithful imagination in the 21st century. I'm your host, Phil Odd. So this is part two of my interview with Dr. Dominic Russo. Dom is a historical theologian and a church planter and a good friend. In the second part of the interview, we delve into questions from his book, Making Sense of the Church, where we talk about what the church is and the various ways that this is being hijacked. We also talk about the deep beauty, yet at times complex nature of linguistic and cultural overlap, which the church has been called from the beginning to champion and faithfully navigate. Again, Quebec is unique and therefore a great center from which to glean wisdom here. I hope you enjoy the second half of the conversation. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information on some of Dom's books. Hey, if you enjoy the Theo Imagination podcast, you might also enjoy checking out Theo Imagination on Substack, where I've been doing a fair amount of writing. I'm currently writing a series of posts called Pentecostalism and the Mislocation of Power. I've included a link to that space as well as my most recent post in the show notes. Enjoy the conversation. I think many of us are intently focused on trying to figure out what secularism is. So we might talk about Charles Taylor here, a Montrealer. Well, you you always make a point when I see you talk about Taylor. You're like, bro, no, he's not just a Montrealer. He's a Roman Catholic. Yep, yep. Montrealer. Why? Why? Before I I continue my question, <laughs> why is that an important distinction to you? I think it's important distinction because the debates between. Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox Christians requires, I would say, an honest confession because there's something about the pluralism that we ourselves as Christians that have created that fuels secularism. And I think as a Catholic, there's a backdrop of saying, you know, the pluralism that feels very complex in the world came about by the breakdown of Protestantism in some sense, right? There, there's a real pluralistic challenge that we were part of, I don't know, getting it started. That's too simplistic, you know, with a PhD in historical theology. Uh, that's too simplistic. But, you know, <laughs> I, I'm just saying, like, I, I just think the Catholic-Protestant conversation is big in Quebec. Yeah, no doubt. So here we have a focus, though, on, you know, however you frame that. You have secularism one, two, and three, as Taylor would talk about. Yeah. I know that you are concerned that we not only rightly understand secularism, but that we rightly understand the church. And and this has even come up a few times in the conversation. You know, I remember you mentioning that it's problematic that some church planters, and I think you alluded to this earlier, they want to plant churches, but they don't even grasp what the church is. So it's not simply the fact of like, okay, as long as we can understand pluralism in a place like Quebec, it's not enough. Like more fundamental to that is grasping what the church actually is, like the ontology of the church in a sense, right? So you have a short book. Yeah. You've been writing these kind of series of introductory books for people very accessible. So you have this book, Making Sense of the Church. And you say that there are three questions that we need to ask. And the first is, why does the church exist? You know, I think like when the church is closed during the pandemic, there were a lot of opinions flying around about whether the church was essential or not, right? Yep. Which is interesting. We suddenly got forced, that question got forced upon us. And goodness, we asked that question through all kinds of different lenses and what have you. But I do wonder, though, if we can talk 
about such things, even like the essential nature of the church, if we don't know why the church exists in the first place. So I'll just throw your own question back at you. Why does the church exist? Yeah, so one of the reasons I wrote this little book, you know, was one is to provide an introduction on ecclesiology. And for listeners, that's just a a doctrine of the church or the study of the church. Yeah. Because I find that the longer we talk about the question that you asked me, the more we get bogged down in Reformation questions Hmm. that Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox have been fighting about for, you know, 600, 700 years. So I feel that we do a disservice to people in our local churches when the academic pull hijacks the conversation. So I was trying to say the academic conversation matters. It matters for us to talk about the ontology of the church, the essence of the church, deep questions about the sacraments. You know, what, what does it mean that there's a mystery about the church, yeah, right? Yeah. This is the biblical language, right? That there's a deep mystery about the church. And the only way that we can really understand the mystery is like Paul says, is like, think about a marriage and think about like, there's all these images for the church because it's too beautiful to just have a definition for. I I would say that the church remains the first fruit of the kingdom of God breaking into the world, Mm -hmm. right? The, The church is those who gather and who point to the fact that the dead Jesus is a resurrected Lord, mm. right? Mm. So we gather as a worshiping community. We gather as those who have been summoned by God to proclaim Jesus as king. Yeah. So we technically, none of us go to church. We're summoned as the church, Yeah. as the people of God. Yeah. And COVID has revealed yeah. and secularism has taught us to define the church as one of the many charities in the world. Mm. We're just a charity. Mm. And that's why one of the chapters or one of the little sections in the book is the church is not a charity. Mm. Like we're not just a charitable organization. Yeah, yes. That's exactly how the government defines us. The government defines us as a non-for-profit charity, right? And what I talk about in the book is while we might welcome that definition when we interact with the government, we should never welcome that definition when we meet as Christians. That, that's not what we are. We live into the fullest meaning of what it means to be the church, yeah, yeah. which is we are those who gather consistently. And I would say gather on a particular day, if possible, you know, yeah. which is Sunday. By the way, let me do a plug for a book by Larry Hurtado called, uh, I think it's called Making Sense of Sunday hmm. or The Meaning of Sunday or something like that. I don't, I'm not sure. Hmm. Uh, well, I'll find it. The book he's referring to is actually by Justo Gonzalez, and it's called A Brief History of Sunday. But he has this beautiful reminder on why the Sunday for the earliest Christians became not only the Lord's Day, but the first day of the week. Yes. In a sense, the resurrection would redefine the rhythm of believers. Mm-hmm. And even that is lost in some sense. I mean, the internet makes it that I watch a preacher whenever I want. Wow. I don't have to set time aside. Yeah, yeah. So it messes with our sense of time. Yeah, and our sense of the, for, the formation of who we are as humans gets disoriented. So the second question you ask then is, how does our modern world cause us to lose the meaning of church? So I'm curious as to how you would answer this question and how Quebec might stand as either a place that leads us in terms of losing the meaning of church or perhaps a place which will lead us in regaining the meaning of church or maybe kind of both. Yeah, you know, if if I have to go write a bigger version of that book, and maybe one day I will, you know, I would say I hope it's both. Yeah. I hope we move quickly to the place of admitting 
that we have let society make the church something that it was never meant to be. It was never meant to be a charity. Mm. It was never meant to be a place where people just belong. It was never meant to be all of these beautiful things. You know, I talk about that as well in the book. The church is not just a place where people belong. People can belong anywhere. Mm. They don't need the church to belong. Mm. So when we make the church just a place of belonging, no wonder that you know other people say, well, I belong better at my hockey team gathering or my weekly poker hangout with the guys. And, you know, yeah. with one swoop, we've lost the whole meaning of church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is so important, right? I mean... <laughs> we talked about the trying to answer questions people aren't asking and even trying to provide things that maybe they don't they don't need or providing something that they do need but is still not the essence of what the church is. I talked with AJ Swoboda mm. and one of the things he talked about is like our language for the church, okay? So if we say that the church is a hospital, that's problematic because what does that mean when you get well? Well, I no longer need the church. Or exactly. if the church is a place of belonging, then, okay, I didn't have belonging, but now I have it here, but I also have it at the poker club. And I guess I can just watch online or do whatever. Yep. How we think about these things matters deeply. And I do think that this is where, when we look at secular societies, when we look at a Montreal, it forces these questions on us, right? It's not like in the Bible Belt, and I think the Bible Belt will head there eventually. You still have kind of the luxury of, okay, people have maybe a general understanding of the gospel, church is part of the culture, all of these kinds of things. So you find these little, like, maybe you don't belong anywhere, come. Whereas for you, ministering in your context, it's like, yeah, none of that works. <laughs> no, None of that works here. Like we need to have something deeper, right? And return to a more foundational thing because we've actually already lost much of that. I mean, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, you nailed it, Phil. But I would even add one more thing, bro. Not only have we lost that, even the people who are still in church have never learned it. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think the people who are in church are still sometimes, unfortunately, gathering out of just sheer convenience. It worked out. I didn't have anything on Sunday. Mm. Or, hey, I wanted to just see a family member who's here. There isn't a deep sense of like, no, no. There is a particular way that Jesus makes himself known when those who've been summoned by him gather to worship him as Lord. Yes. And that is the great gift of the church that no other organization, organism in the world will ever have. That, like, that is it. And if we don't reclaim the transcendence of that, mm. people will confuse, oh, you know, I went to a Hillsong's concert and it's the same as the church. Well, no, not really. Right. No. Uh, I went to a picnic and I hung out with some people from the church. Okay, that's called a picnic. One of my pet peeves is people who call church whatever they like to do. <laughs> they go to Starbucks and read their Bible. They call that the church. Yes. Whatever they like to do, they call church. Right. And I say to them, I'm like, do you know that we don't just get to redefine what church is based on what we like to do, right? Mm -hmm. This is where sometimes the question for me is like, oh, really? Did you receive the sacraments? Did you recite the creed together? Which, again, you know, when we begin to lose these things, even by great people— who care about Jesus, sometimes I think we are setting ourselves up for becoming almost non-essential because when we're not being the church, like when we get the essence wrong, the foundation wrong, it'll become natural for people to leave in, in a sense, right? 
Well, not only that, Phil, I would say that's what secularism has done to us. Yeah, yeah. Secularism has just told us, this is how you should call yourself. You should call yourself a charity. And we're like, okay, this is what you should do. You should just help other people or will think that you're not useful. And we're like, okay, we should do that. A few years ago, the Quebec government launched a marketing campaign in some of the subways in Montreal. And it was really an approach to try to emphasize the secularism of the province. Mm. And the campaign, the marketing campaign was fascinating. It basically was a little ad that said, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, atheist, everyone is sacred. Everything is spiritual. Mm. This is a neutral place for everybody. Okay, this was the ad. Look at the gist of the ad. Yeah. And it revealed something that I had for years heard in many evangelical churches. And that is that everything is spiritual. So what a secular government does is it doesn't say you can't go to church. It just says, what if everything you do is like church? <laughs> you see the difference? You see the play? Mm -hmm. That's the move. That's the magical move. The secular governments don't say you shouldn't go to church, but they say, if you're just like at the park playing with your kids and you have nice Christian music playing, isn't that church as well? Right. And people who don't know better will say, I guess it is because the Lord is with us. And then we misunderstand or two or three are gathered together for whatever we want it to mean. Mm. And so I think this is the great crisis of our time that very few people are talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think of Newbigin here, and he was kind of prophetic in the sense where he said, you know, we were sold on the idea that there is public truth and private truth. And yeah. One plus one equals two is a public truth. Jesus is Lord is a private truth. And we have no, no problem with you saying it. Just don't bring it into the public sphere. And so I think we largely said, okay. <laughs> and it's not just like the church is reaping over against society this. It's like, no, no, no. The church is now living into the implications of that, that, you know, my picnic at the park is church yep. and oh and we drank wine there so it's eucharist like <laughs> yeah I, I think so one of the other things that no one's talking about is that this decline or this lack of thoughtful reflection on the church is most indicative of a massive decrease in people feeling called to the ministry huh interesting that if you don't believe that there's something special and unique about the gathering of the people of god that requires a unique burden and calling to shepherd and lead there, mm. you will never feel a calling to ministry. Mm. You'll just say anybody can do this. Like there's nothing special about this. And I think we're not being serious enough to connect the massive crises in almost every denomination for clergy is, is like plummeting for people training for ministry. Wow. Yeah. Right. And I think it's deeply connected to the fact that we've told people for 20 years, anybody can do this. It doesn't matter. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that God uses everybody in the work of, of God, right? It's the liturgy, the work of the people, yeah. right? But we also need to return to a particular call for leadership in the church that needs to be connected to those who equip the saints for the work of the ministry, mm -hmm. right? And we've lost all of that. And it's a tight web. It's a tight web. It's connected to our theology of the church. It's connected to our understanding of evangelism. It's connected to our understanding of sacraments, for lack of better words, just the, the great mysteries of God's grace in our midst. Yeah. And, and I feel that this is all coming, it's going to hit the fan, like in a way that we've never anticipated. And 
we've done some of this to ourselves. We've done some of this to ourselves, yeah. It's not the devil like doing it. We, we, you know, we've done this to ourselves. You have a very rich Italian heritage. You live and minister in a French culture mm-hmm. to an English congregation. <laughs> and um, likely like a trilingual congregation. A trilingual congregation, yeah. So I remember, you know, a mutual friend of ours um, who's a part of your congregation telling me years ago about visiting his grandparents, his Italian grandparents. Mm-hmm. And they're upset because they go, you know, like our grandkids don't speak fluent Italian anymore mm. like what are you what are you doing yeah. and he was trying to explain oh my goodness i speak french at school they come home they speak english uh it's a little difficult to fit that third language in there somehow and it's not that he didn't want to it's just the complexity of living in in that environment so i know that you and i would both affirm and uphold the gift of of this hybridity okay i'm not talking homie baba here maybe i should talk about linguistic diversity or cultural diversity. Just to simplify, I'm using hybridity in a very loose sense here, which I felt was worth pausing for for the moment. Anyway, back to the question. But I'm curious as to, you know, as an Italian who grew up in a specifically, a particularly Italian congregation, what your experiences are with regards to both the gifts and the challenges that this brings to the local church. So I guess what advice would you bring to a pastor who's trying to navigate overlapping worlds in the church? What kind of pastoral advice would you provide? Oh, that's a great question, Phil. Uh, I mean, there's so much to say to that. Is I, I mean, I would say that my upbringing was like, obviously I was born in Canada, but my parents are from Southern Italy and hearing immigrant stories and growing up in the multilingual space was my first early experience mm. of just being a, like a boy in Quebec, right? Yeah. When I was 13, you know, I started to understand the linguistic challenge as it relates to the church in a different way. Mm. I was in a bilingual church that was trying to use English and Italian and people speaking French. What a mess. But I've come to appreciate that that's really the story of the New Testament. Mm. So you have the Hebrew story of Jesus. Yes. And then you have the New Testament that's in Greek. The earliest Christians are using a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. Yeah. So they're already translating the story of Jesus into Greek mm. in their minds and in the, among their peers. And then we have the expansion of the story of the church in a Latin world. Mm. And so I feel that you know, Laman Sane, who's one of the great historians of the church, talks about the translatability of the gospel as one of its great strengths. Mm. Mm. Um, and so I feel that being in Quebec, uh, we never take that for granted, that it also comes with real challenges. Yeah. The other thing, too, that for our listeners who particularly serve in ethnic spaces, yeah. there's a more natural belonging when you have ethnic mm. connections. Like people gather just to be with people from their community because of that ethnic tie before they fully understand the beauty of being the church with different people. They're just learning to be the church with people that are the same. I think that you have to do both ends. I think we want to honor the spaces of cultural and ethnic lineage that have been given to us. But at the same time, there needs to be room to explore different ways. I mean, we're seeing this with many of our Chinese or Asian communities you know, I, I remember the feelings. I know in the PAOC, 
years back, there was a big tension with the German-speaking Christians who were seeing their kids not learn German. Mm. And so there's an anxiety about the loss of a culture. I think that that's not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah. And I don't even think it's a church problem. I just think it's a society problem. Right, like, right. Not a problem, but it's a society challenge of parents feeling that we want to pass on our faith and language is part of that. It's a very crucial part of that. Mm. So I, I don't know if I have any magical solutions for how to do that, but I think the church is one of the only places in the world that has to take that question seriously. Like Apple and Mac and IBM and Toyota, none of those companies worry about what language we speak when we buy their products. Interesting. Yeah. I think we as a church are called to particular care. Let me put it this way, Phil. We're intergenerational mediators. Mm. A priestly role almost. Yeah. We're, we're priestly roles between generations, between those who have gone before us. Like I think of you, right? Think of your dad. Mm-hmm. Okay. I had the, the blessing of knowing your dad and of having great memories with him and with you together. And you would say this, and I would say this, you know, that how he became a Christian and how he modeled faithful Christian witness might be very different than how your kids become Christians, right? Right, right. So you, as a son, would likely be mediating that with your mom or with your dad. You know, you, you're kind of mediating the experience of Jesus is different. Okay, so one final question, Don. You know, in this post-pandemic time, yeah. and again, you know, as a church planner, wow, difficult. But amidst the difficulty, where are you seeing signs of hope for the church? Well, one of the signs of hope, I think, is that we are learning that we must suffer and grieve together if we're going to get through this. Mm. I think COVID has brought us a more unified sense of deep grief as we realize that we weren't discipling people as well as we thought we were. Mm-hmm. We weren't teaching the Bible in a way that went deep enough for people to care about Christian community. So I think there's kind of a, a convergence of a new kind of grief mm-hmm. that maybe is going to help us admit that we need each other more than ever. Yeah. In Quebec, we definitely see signs of that. Like Protestants and Catholics work together in Quebec more than they have ever had to in the past because the crisis is very real. Wow. So we're going to need each other in new ways. And there's signs of hope too, I think, because a lot of the statistics and a lot of the things we're learning is that young people are less likely to get spiritual insight from digital tools. Yeah. That's good news for us. It, It means that when they get serious about things, they're going to want embodied presence and an embodied witness absolutely to something serious yeah because they grew up with digital tools right they live in the digital world all the time they want something different if they're going to get serious about spirituality and faith yeah and that's good news i couldn't agree more i mean this is one of the shocks to me i think during the pandemic was for years many of us assumed it'll be the younger generation who will be lured away by technology and you know not need the church or like the physical presence of church. Yeah. It's the opposite, man. I've seen this both at the university and then yeah. you know I was an interim pastor during the height of the pandemic and the people who were showing up online were like the older people and you're going, where are the younger people? And same thing with like, goodness, we tried tons of things at the university um, and necessarily had to do them online. Just such a lack of interest. And so I, what we found was the younger generations were going, our whole life is online. We 
could care less about showing up to church on Monday. Like when we come, it's an escape from our phone to actually see real people. Yep. Whereas some of the older people in the congregation are like, hey, we're moving a little slow or these days. We still love everybody. We're still giving. But uh, I got to be honest, we love digital church. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my goodness. It was, I it's think true. for many of us, not exactly what we were expecting, but yeah, I mean, I think that is such a sign of hope too. I agree with you fully, Dom. I just would say, bro, you know, if, if there's anything listeners kind of connect or take away is that whenever we get too comfortable with disembodied models of church, we're always moving towards an antichrist church. There's no such thing as a disembodied expression of the people of God. Yeah. So digitized tools are just a substitute for embodied gatherings. Like they're important. I think technology is great. I think this is great. Yeah. But what makes this special is I've hugged Phil Odd. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've hugged you. I know you. You know what I mean? So, so this is an addition to our friendship, no matter how far you are, not a substitute to that. Fully agree, man. So let's get back in the same space soon and uh, have this conversation face to face. Yeah, over a coffee or a nice drink. So thanks for doing this, bro. Hey, thank you, Dom. Much love. And uh, we look forward to hearing more about the 180 Church in the days to come. So that wraps my conversation with Dominic Russo. Coming up next is my interview with the fascinating and deeply wise Dr. Mark Sharona, where we talk about the need for prophetic reform. Until next time, grace and peace.